You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Well, today is, uh, as Nick mentioned uh, briefly, is Trinity Sunday, and so I'm going to attempt to preach to you about the Trinity. And um, it's uh, often described as a difficult preaching task. Um, I love a bit of theological humour, and um, which is probably just me, I know. But anyway, but one of my favourite little s- sketches on the internet is uh, um, a seat. Which, come to think of it, as I stand up here now, it's probably slightly offensive to my Irish heritage. So apologies uh, for any of you who have Irish heritage here. But it's it's a, a cartoon about um, St Patrick arriving in Ireland for the first time to tell people about uh, about the Christian faith, and he he tries to explain the Trinity to uh, a couple of Irish pre-Christian pagans, and he says, you know, one God in three persons, and you know, he starts using technical theological language, and they say, can you just break it down for us, please? Just give us an analogy, some kind of metaphor or something like that. He says, well, it's a bit like, um, it's a bit like water. You know, water can be ice, and it can be vapor, and it can be liquid. And one of these pre-Christian pagan Irish, and he sort of interrupts and goes, no, Patrick. <laughs> that's modalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius that God is not actually three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was condemned in Canon 1 of the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those that confess it cannot rightly be considered members of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> and so it goes on with all the various analogies of the Trinity. The Trinity's, to explain the Trinity abstractly is notoriously difficult and involves all sorts of difficult words and so on. But my basic conviction for today is that it's not so hard to experience God as Trinity. In fact, I would say that's kind of a whole point of the Christian faith and maybe even bigger than that. Um, uh, the writer G.K. Chesterton says, um, said this about it. A lot of people are uneasy with the doctrine of the Trinity. It seems like medieval mumbo-jumbo, jumbo, but everybody gets enthusiastic about the claim that God is love. But in fact, these two claims are the same. So if we can grasp God's love, what that means, that God is love, then we can begin to grasp what it means that God is triune, that he's a trinity. Um, God brings us, when he saves us, he brings us into a knowledge of his love. That's what, basically what it means to be saved. And all working out all the implications of that is really working out what it means to be a Christian. And one of the um, key um, pictures that the Bible gives us, key words that the Bible gives us to explain our salvation, which I think gets really to the heart of this and gives us a way into understanding God as Trinity, is um, that God, when he saves us, he adopts us. He adopts us as his children. Um, so he says in Romans 8, he, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons. Um, by him we cry, Abba, Father. So when we're saved, they're brought into sonship, and it's not meant to be gender-exclusive in any way, but it, it really refers to the fact that what it's meant to communicate is that when we're saved, we're brought into the position of sons, and so we experience God's divine life as the son, like the Son of God does, from his perspective or his position. We begin to share in his sonship, just as the Son of God experiences the triune love of God, so we begin to. Now, it's still, I know it's still kind of abstract. <laughs> I know we're still talking about ideas. But that, that gives us a way into understanding um, what it means to know God as Trinity, that we are brought into the position of the Son 
that we are as a, adopted as sons, and we begin to experience God's love as sons. So, so far, that hasn't got a lot to do with Isaiah 6, I'll admit. Um, but what I think is really interesting about this passage in Isaiah is that it does help us to understand what that means, what experiencing the trying love of God as an adopted son means. This reading from Isaiah is chosen, I think, for Trinity Sunday. Typically, I think for the first reason is it, it's the first place, I think, in Scripture where um, the trisagion is, is exclaimed, which is the holy, holy, holy. You notice the seraphim are crying, holy, holy, holy. And with this threefold reference to God, the first hint in the Old Testament is this, uh, uh, of this phrase that obviously goes on to be developed in the New. So there's a hint there of the Trinity. But also this passage is referred to later in other places in the New Testament. As, um, so uh, John writes in uh, John 12, I think it is, he says that Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus when he saw this vision. Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus when he saw this vision. That's John 12, 41. And in Acts 28, the words, uh, um, whom shall I send, who will go for us, uh, they're attributed to the Holy Spirit. So the writer, uh, Luke, the writer in Acts says, the Holy Spirit said these things. And so we have this, this reference to the Trinity in Isaiah before the Trinity is fully revealed. And so we, this reading is chosen partly for those, those reasons. But there's something else, I think, aside from these slightly sideways references to the Trinity, which we can see clearly in retrospect. There's something else about Isaiah's experience of encountering God that, that reveals to us, it helps us to understand what it means to be adopted as God's children. Isaiah is brought into God's glorious presence. This is his commissioning. The first five chapters of Isaiah are kind of like a, a prologue. They're an overview. They're like that bit in the film and the, the narrator says, in the world, where it's that, that's the first five chapters of Isaiah. Isaiah 6 is him, now the story's beginning, it's his commissioning. And he's, in, in a moment, there's hardly any explanation given, but in a moment he, he just sees the Lord seated on the throne. This is real, full-time, like proper, full-on prophecy, isn't it? He sees the Lord seated on the throne, he's brought into God's glorious presence. And what he sees and experiences in that moment of commissioning is like a foreshadowing of what it means for us to be adopted as God's children. To know the Trinity from the perspective of the Son. So we're going to look at three aspects of knowing God as Trinity from this passage, using Isaiah's experience as a kind of framework for that. Hopefully that'll help it stick in our memories and uh, does justice to God's word. Those three things we're going to look at. We're going to look at beholding God's love, reflecting God's love, and being filled and overflowing with God's love. Those three things. So beholding God's love. When it's uh, an eclipse comes around, I can't remember when the last full eclipse was. Anyone know? No. When the moon front bank stick. But they hand out these, uh, they give lots of warnings, like don't stare directly at the sun, don't look at it, and they, they often give out like um, little cards and you can see a reflection of what's happening, or you can wear like special like polarizing sunglasses so you can see it. But there, all these warnings come about like, um, do not stare at the sun for too long, you will damage your eyes. It'll damage your eyes. And in the Old Testament, that's what it's like for anyone who is, for some reason, chosen to see God. There is this warning that goes along with it. That it's like, if you stare too long, if you look too close, if you see God, if you really see him face to face, you're not just going to damage your eyes, you will die. That's what's happening to Isaiah. And he's experiencing this 
this revelation of God's glory in front of him. But notice he doesn't see God's face. He sees the train of his robe fill the temple. And even so, even though he doesn't see God's face, he is filled with this sense of dread. I've seen God. I'm going to die. And it's the same throughout the Old Testament. Moses has the same thing. He, he begs to see God and God lets him see the, the back, his back as he walks by. But won't let him see his face because he will die. And that's a representation of, of, of God's holiness. But what the Bible says about the Son is, the Son of God is, that he beholds the glory of God fully. He beholds God's love completely and fully. He comprehends it. He can, the Son can gaze upon the Father without having to avert his eyes. So John says, the, the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Now we're still talking abstractly. We're talking about things in eternity that are hard for us to understand. And um, St. Augustine tries to penetrate this mystery and he, he, he tries to give us an explanation of the Trinity. He says this, he says, if God is love, then he must consist of three aspects. Actually, even, that, even those words aren't precise enough, so you have to forgive me trampling all over this theologically. But anyway, three somethings. <laughs> he must consist of a lover, one who loves, a beloved, one who is loved and loves in return, and the love that exists between them. That's Augustine's kind of philosophical explanation of the Trinity. And what he's trying to get out there is that the Son in the Trinity is the one who is loved by the Father. He is the beloved one. He sees the love of the Father completely. And he, um, he reflects it back to the Father. He sees the love of the Father completely. Because we are adopted, Jesus enables us to see the love of the Father for us. He enables us to behold the Father's glory, not like Isaiah, where we are, woe to me, I am undone, dread-filling us. Where it's too much for us, but he enables us to gaze upon God and see his holiness and comprehend his love. You know, Isaiah's experience is not just for people who are prophets who happen to have heavenly visions. But each one of us, without Christ, we behold God's glory, not as something that gives life, but we, we, we see God as almost like a, like a threat, like something that hangs over us. Like if we were to meet him, it would be scary. You know, we, we see that in the, in the story of, uh, in the very earliest human experiences of Adam. Once he sins against God, he's afraid of God and hides in the garden. And when God comes, he lies to cover up his sin because he, he doesn't want to be uncovered by him. And when God pronounces a curse over the earth, he interprets that as God's anger and judgment against him. And, and we have a similar experience in our own lives. We interpret the world around us, the things that happen as, as, um, perhaps, especially for, for non-Christians, they experience the world as random. Or maybe even as evil, like Darwin said, maybe the world around us is red in tooth and claw, full of anger and hatred and violence and destruction. And people experience that in their own lives as well. They see the things that happen to them as, as judgment for things they've done in the past or just random evil happening to them. And when they see God's law, they see it as an impossible target. That you cannot attain to this thing. And it's a, it's a judgment upon us. So people don't want to be told about God's law because they feel so condemned by it. They just reject it. But Jesus comes and he enables us to behold God and see what he's truly like. What he's truly like. Isaiah, in this throne room, he's, he's, as he says, he's undone. He's, 
he, he should die for being there. An angel takes a coal from the, the, the heavenly altar and touches it to his lips. And in that moment, he is purified of his sin. And he's enabled to behold God, not in his judgment, not because he's so scary or so big, you know, with his train filling the temple and the seraphs flying about, but he's able to behold him as the glorious one who is love. He's able to see God for who he really is. And that's symbolic of what Jesus does for us on, on the cross. When Jesus dies on the cross for us, he, he takes upon himself the punishment for our sins. Not just, not just it, like a, an idea, but he actually takes upon himself the punishment for our sins, all the guilt and everything that we deserve for our sin. And he, he clears the way between us and God so that we can behold God's holiness for what it really is. Love. Love. You know, our ancestors would have gazed up at the sky and they would have asked the question, what, is, what, is the, what are the stars? What are they made of? What lies at their heart? And even a few generations ago, people, even when we had an idea that stars were these great burning things, people looked at the sun and said, what lies at the heart of this thing? And now, now science, progress in science, and also things, mathematics and our measurements we can take means we, we can pretty much gaze into the heart of the sun and say, this is what is there. Jesus enables us to gaze into the heart of God and see that his holiness, perceived for so long as judgment, is love. A love that, yes, judges, but must exclude everything that stands up against it. But is love nonetheless. And there's this amazing passage in Revelation 4. It just hit me as I was preparing this message, almost like a last minute thought. There's this amazing passage in Revelation 4 when it says, a door opens into heaven. And we get to see what's happening there. The, the whole of creation is around the throne, crying out to God's praise. And then in the center, next to the throne, is one who was like a lamb, like a lamb who was slain. And we see Jesus portrayed as, as the crucified one in the center of heaven. And it struck me, this is what Isaiah wasn't allowed to see. This is what Moses wasn't allowed to see. If you're reading that as a Jewish person, you're reading John's revelation for the first time. A door opened into heaven. Can you see how significant that is? There was no door before. It was just, it was God's back. It was, it was his glory overwhelming. We had no insight into his throne room. And yet now because of Christ, we can see God is love. God is love. We see it on the cross. His love portrayed for us supremely. That nothing would turn away his good will towards us. Nothing we can do would turn him away from trying to, to bring us to himself. That nothing will stop him. That all the powers of heaven are directed towards saving us and blessing us. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And having that as our centerpiece of our faith, it enables us to interpret the whole of reality, to, to have the, the, the glasses that Adam has put on that distort everything taken off. And we begin to see that the world around us is not actually full of judgment or terror, not towards those who believe, but is actually full of God's love. Which is why it says in Romans 8, God works all things together for those who love him. Because we, because we have the Spirit, because Christ died for us, because our lips have been touched with that burning coal that purifies, we're able to see those things. We see that God is love in everything he does for us, everything that happens and everything that he made, every part of life he pours out his love for us. So Jesus puts us in the position of sons in that we are able to comprehend, to behold God's love for what it is. That's the first part of what it means to know the love of God. 
That's pretty amazing, I think. But there's more. There's more to it. To be a son is not merely to know that the Father loves you. It's also to love the Father as the Son does. So that's the second point. The Son perfectly reflects the love of God. So Hebrews 1 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. John 5, 19 says this, The Son can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So what I want you to imagine is it's a, a blazing light, like the sun, but a million times brighter. It's blazing out, and then there's a perfect mirror that's, that's designed to perfectly reflect the blazing light of the sun. And the two are, are positioned next to each other. That's a picture, a clumsy, anal- analogical picture of the relationship between the Father and the Son. The Son's glory shining out. The Father's glory shining out, and the Son reflecting it perfectly back to him. But, of course, the Son isn't just a mirror, and the Father isn't just a blazing light. They are persons. They're free. They're able to relate to one another. And so it's not just a static thing. There's this uh, amazing relationship between these two persons of the Godhead. When we are adopted, when we're saved by Christ, we are enabled to reflect God's glory like the Son reflects God's glory. You see, the, the, you see this is a different aspect to what we're already saying? And again, we see this in Isaiah's experience. So Isaiah is, the, the coal is there to purify him, to, to sanctify him, to enable him to stand in God's presence. But it's placed to his lips. Notice that. It's placed to his lips. And the first significance of that touching is that it frees him up to speak a truth about what he sees, to reflect in his words back to God. What he sees, actually the symbolism in Isaiah, what's being given to us is these amazing angels, these seraphim, which goodness knows like what they're, they're like, but they have six wings, two wings covering their eyes, two wings covering their feet, and, and they, they fly around God's throne room. And they're, they're, the, the root of the word in Hebrew is supposed to imply that they, they're called the burning ones, the burning ones. They burn with a holy fire. They're in God's presence and they speak God's glory back to himself. Holy, holy, holy. They're crying all the time. And, and Isaiah is promoted, if you like, with this burning coal to his lips. He's promoted to the rank of seraph temporarily, I guess. He's enabled to speak like the seraphim, the truth about God. Not just to stand in his presence undestroyed, but having, being able to behold his presence and then begin to say, this is what I see. Holy, holy, holy. He's able to speak the truth about God. Jesus, when he saves us, when we're adopted, he does the same for us. Naturally speaking, the Bible is very clear. We, we, we may be made in the image of God. We may be made to reflect him, but we are broken mirrors, dirty and grimy and shattered into pieces, very, very limitedly or almost completely unable to reflect God's glory. And yet through Christ, he pieces us back together and he cleans us up. I mean, these are pictures, but you know it from experience, don't you? You know the power of Christ in your life to piece you back together, to shine you up, to enable you not just to see God's glory, but begin to speak the truth about God. You've experienced, haven't you? If you're a Christian, you know that truth as an experience in your life. He pieces us back together so that we can reflect God's glory. He, he not only cleanses us from our sin, he not only enables us to behold God, he not only removes our judgment, but he, in doing so, he makes us or begins to make us, make us, starts the process of making us whole and perfect once more so that we can reflect, reflect his glory. 
So what does that mean in practice? It means as we see God's love for us poured out at the cross and in everything around us in the situations of our life, we are able to love him in return. We're able to respond with a perfect response. Like that mirror, we're able to say, when we see God's beauty in creation, we're able to say, we're able to praise him and give him thanks. We're filled with a joy that is appropriate to things around us. You know, yesterday we um, took the children down to Amberley which, uh, for a walk along the river. And it was just like a, a glimpse, a moment, a glimpse of heaven. It was, the air was, I said to Abby, the air was like honey. It was thick because it was humid. And the smell of the blossoms was on the trees, so it was sweet. And uh, these, the, the pink and white petals were falling from the hawthorn trees like confetti. All the way, it was like three and a half, four miles on this walk around the river. And it was just like, this is just a little taste of heaven. And it, so God's love, you know, just very practically, God's love, his creative love, his, his beauty was revealed, I think, to me in that moment, you know. But I was enabled not just to go, not just in my heart to receive that, but to begin to praise him in a way that's appropriate. Lord, I love you for what you've made. I praise you for your creativity, for your attention to detail, for the joy that you pour into my heart. I give you thanks and praise. It makes my lips are touched, you know. But not just, not just praise, not just gratitude, but a whole life that's a, that, that is full of a, a love that's appropriate to the love that God reveals to us. So a, a life that's filled with the character of Christ. It's filled with a humility that reflects God's abundant grace and overflowing goodness to us. We become like mirrors. And so our whole lives are filled with not just the receipt of God's love, but a reflection. A reflection. And what that means is we're not just knowing God in one way, I see God's love for me, but now we're knowing it in another way, as I love God in return, I'm identifying with the Son. Do you see that? I'm doing what the Son does and has done for all eternity. I'm, I'm coming alongside him and doing what the Son does. I'm loving the Father in return. I'm having fellowship with Christ. I'm experiencing the love of God in another dimension, as it were. And as we do that, we see God's love even more for us. As we respond in this way, we hear... Not just his love poured out for us initially, but we also hear is, I'm well pleased with you, like he was well pleased with the son. As we, as we love him in return, we see his love for us more clearly. So, we reflect God's glory. We behold God's glory. We reflect God's glory. And we're filled with God's glory. That's the, that's the third aspect of this adoption. I think this third aspect is the most difficult for us to explain abstractly. So Augustine, in his little picture he gives us, he says the Trinity is, if God is love, then there's a, a lover and a beloved and the love that exists between us, between them. Well, we, we kind of understand a, a lover and a beloved, don't we? But the love that exists between them, it's hard to imagine that as a, as a person or a, a son. You know, it's hard to get our heads around it, isn't it? I find it hard. I'm about to preach in it, so. <laughs> and one modern theologian said this, so just to make it clearer for you. Together, the Father and the Son disclose that totality of their love is the exuberance of yet another, who is both the unity and the fruit of their love, the Holy Spirit. Made it clearer for you? <laughs> I think that it's a wonderful sentence, but it's, it's hard to get your head around, isn't it? You know, it's like... But as we gaze on it, you know, something does become clearer, I think. 
If we imagine, I don't know if you, when you, Nick. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Together, the Father and the Son disclose that the totality of their love is the exuberance of yet another, who is both the unity and the fruit of their love, the Holy Spirit. I don't know if when you were younger, maybe when you're older, you do this as well, but have you ever tried to get two mirrors opposite each other so you get like an infinite reflection? It's really hard. I mean, you might get 20, 25, and they start to veer off. Anyone ever tried to do that? Or my or a camera and a TV, they point at each other, and you, the image just goes, you get the image of the image of the image of the image of the image. You ever done that? Okay, I'm not getting a massive enthusiastic response. I'm just going to roll with it, assuming you know what I'm talking about. Okay, but... It's easy to us, if we just imagine the Trinity, if we just think about the Father and the Son, firstly, it's kind of like having two mirrors opposite each other. There's an infinity about that, a shining forth and a reflecting and a reflecting back and a reflecting back. It goes on infinitely, perfectly aligned to one another. That's kind of mind-blowing, but the Bible makes really clear that the Holy Spirit is more than just the Father and the Son reflecting one another over and over and over again. But there is something abundant. About, it, about him. There's something fruitful about their love for one another. There's a, there's a pouring forth and an overflowing about the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father. And we see that in this passage. Isaiah, who is purified, who's enabled to worship God like a seraph, is also commissioned. Who will go and speak to this people for me? Here I am. Send me. And that's a great picture of the third aspect of what it means to know God. Isaiah becomes a burning one, but he's also, he begins to overflow with this love. He goes on mission with God. He goes and God begins to be creative through him and bring new things into being through him. In Isaiah's case, it's judgment upon Israel, which will bring about, ultimately enables um, the Messiah to come forth from Israel. But he's bringing about a new thing. So we, we see this in, elsewhere in the Bible. We see the spirit hovering over the waters in uh, the beginning of Genesis. So everything we know is created through the word, but the spirit is somehow pouring forth through the word, doing new things, through the sun, doing new things. We see it in the commissioning of, of Adam. Once Adam is, is made in God's image and he's given this garden, we've got these two aspects of Adam is able to, before the fall, he's able to see God's love for him. And he's able to live in such a way that every part of his life gives glory to God. But he's also commissioned to go forth, multiply, fill, subdue the earth. We see it in Jesus' own ministry, of course. The son descending from the father on mission. Not just, you know, Jesus didn't have to, God didn't have to save us. He was not obliged to save us. But his mercy pouring forth brings something new to life, creates something new. He saves us and creates a church who will know him and enjoy him and glorify him forever and ever because the Spirit is pouring forth through Christ. When we become Christians, when we're adopted as sons, Jesus pours forth the Spirit into us. The Father pours forth the Spirit into us. And so we are enabled to go out with God, to go forth with him, to go on mission with him. We share that experience of having God's love poured into us and overflowing out of us. But it's not just about 
going and doing what God wants us to do, something else happens as we do that. We become more alive ourselves. We know God more. We perceive his love more and we're able to love him in return more. And so there's this third aspect to knowing, to knowing God. You know, Jesus, I think he hinted it in Luke 6, 38. He says, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. As we go out with God and do his work in the world, as we, as we copy what Christ did and go on mission with God and we live out lives that give glory to God and we bring his life and his love into every aspect of creation, as we share the gospel with people, we are giving out. And as we give, something is poured into us. But it's not just a replacement. It's not like God is just filling up the tank and going, there you go, off you go again. But more is given than we have given out. Something happens not just in the world around us, but in us as well. And so we come to know God in this third way. Come to know God in this, in this third way. You know, perhaps family is the best picture we have of it in this life. You know, a man and a woman who love one another, give themselves completely to one another. Um, a new life is created. That new life is comes from both of them you know when I look at Sophie I see me and I see Abby and so it's the fulfillment of my love for her and her love for me but I also see someone else I see Sophie that's a new thing has come into being and and this new thing makes me more myself it makes me love Abby more (laughs) And, and, and it pours forth its own fruitfulness. And Sophie's got, oh, sorry to pick on you, Sophie. But Sophie's got this whole life ahead of her, of, of, of repeating the whole thing. Isn't that an amazing picture? That is, I think that picture is given to us. Just give us a hint of what this threefold love of God is like. As we receive the Spirit, as we are filled like the Son, overflow with the Spirit, as we do God's work and work with him, we see God's love more, we become more ourselves, and something new is made. And then, so we see, as we see his love more, we reflect his love more, and so something else new can be made. And so we see God's love more, and we reflect his love more, and so something else new can be made. And so this, this eternal process of coming to know God's love more and more is set in motion. So, I hope that's been okay for you guys. Exploration of the Trinity. I think it gives us an idea what the Trinity means. I hope you can see how those, there are some anchors there between this really philosophical or hard to understand theology and some everyday experience. How does a God enable us to know him fully in all these ways? Three applications for us. Firstly, I think this vision of knowing God as sons is a really helpful way a helpful um, picture to guide our discipleship, to show us what it means to grow in maturity as a Christian, to show us what it means to seek more of God. Actually, I began to think about this message when uh, the worship team were meeting a week, uh, not last Friday, the week before, and I wanted to give them a, a theology of worship, just, uh, you know, so five minutes, sketched it down. That's a joke. It's, <laughs> it's lots and lots of thinking. But I wanted to give them a really simple thing. So we talked about this, being made sons and beholding God's glory and reflecting God's glory and being commissioned to, to empowered by God to overflow with his love. And I was saying, that's the purpose of a Sunday morning meeting. That's why we, we gather around the Lord's table 
all God's people together, called together with all the gifts that God has given us present. We come for all three of those things. Because here, uh, around the, the Eucharist, God's love is portrayed to us in this life most clearly, isn't it? As we remember, as we recall the Lord's death upon the cross. Our love to him is fulfilled most clearly as we, we come to that and we, we sing songs. We're even able to adore him most fully, almost, I think, more than in any other part of life, which is why Sundays are so special. And we're equipped to overflow with the power of the Holy Spirit in every part of life when we come together on a Sunday. Because God pours out his spirit in a very special way when we gather together as his church. That, that's a really good way of picturing the church. And, but it's, it's a, this, this sonship is a good way of, of understanding what it means to be a Christian. You know, think about this. That, that, one of our goal, that there's this threefold goal as a Christian. That one of your goals as a Christian, maturity, is to comprehend God's love for you displayed at the cross in all things. A mature Christian, the goal to which God is bringing to you is that every situation you face, Everything that you look at, everything that you experience will say to you, God loves me. Everything. The sweet honey smell of the river at Amberley to the most trying suffering that you face. God will reveal to you through Christ that he loves you. That's what the Bible says. We're not left with the mystery of Job where, you know, where were you when I founded the, the earth? We're not left with a, you just have to trust me. But the Bible says through Christ, we are admitted to this mystery where we begin through the work of the Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. To be able to say, God works all things together for those that love him. And so, and so one, of, one of the cries that we should have in, in our, our lives, whenever we face difficult situations, thinking of, of Pete the other day, we had such a sweet time together. Before we went into hospital, he was so ill. And he said to me this amazing thing. He says, you know, Jeff, I don't know if this is weird, but I just want to tell you, I've never doubted God's love for me. Isn't that amazing? You know, I was welling up as he told me that. He said, it's hard, but I never doubt God's love for me. And I said, that's how it should be, Pete. That's what it should be like when you're raised by wonderful Christian parents and you live your whole life you know, among God's people and you love God the way you do, Pete. That's what it should be like. That's what the Bible says it should be like. It's not weird. So our cry should be, one of our cries is just really simply a takeaway for us is, Lord, open my eyes to your love. Let me be like Isaiah in the temple, but rather than woe is me, let me see the, the lamb who was slain. Let me see your love to me in every situation, every circumstance. But more than that, it's an amazing goal that we, that we should want to reflect God's love perfectly in all things, in all circumstances. To live a life that looks like a life should look like if we get what Christ has done for us on the cross, that every aspect of our life should perfectly reflect him. You know, I gave that, that picture of walking um, in Amberley yesterday, you know, and after that moment of this, the, the, the air was like, honey, you know what happened? No, it didn't rain. Charlotte was like, I want to go home. And then she said the same thing for about 15 minutes. And Nathan lay down on the floor. I was like, I can't walk anymore. <laughs> And this beautiful moment of a revelation of God's love is potentially ruined, right? Because then I'm, I'm, a response is required. And yet God invites my response to be like Christ's. <laughs> to love them, to show them grace, to encourage them. You know, all those things that, to invite a response, like as a father that reflects the goodness and the love of God. 
And as I, as I do that, as I see God's love, but also as I respond with love, not just with praise, but with whatever the situation demands, I come to know God more perfectly. So we, there's this challenge in all of life's circumstances, in the silly things like the you know whining children on the walk, to the big things like the suffering that we experience or our loved ones experience. There is this 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 temptation to, to to for the love of God to be we think blotted out, but actually what's being called from us is a response of love and faith to give Him every part of our lives in obedience. And so we can we can cry out to Him, "Open my eyes, Lord," but we also want to cry out to Him, "Lord, open my lips." that in everything I may speak your glory, that like a seraphim I may declare in every situation, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth declares your glory, Lord. Open my, open my eyes, Lord. Open my mouth, Lord. So, but more than that, to want to be on mission with God. To want to create new things with God. To want to see new life appear. To want to see people say, to want to see the fruitfulness of the Spirit in our lives. To want to see the world transformed by the power of God. Is it, there's something amazing about that as a, as a goal for us. You know, Paul says in Philippians 3, he says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection and participations in his suffering. He says, I want to go on mission with Jesus. In all that I do, I want to be sent out with him. To share in those things, his resurrection, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. I want to be going with God so that I can experience not just his love poured out for me, not just me loving him, but his love overflowing out of me. And so our cry is not just, Lord, open my eyes, not just, Lord, open my lips, but Lord, here I am. Send me. Send me in the power of your spirit. The Trinity shapes how we see our Christian lives and what it means to be mature. What God is taking us to. You know, think about the Trinity glorifies Christ even more. That's the second application. It just draws us to love Jesus. It's ironic, isn't it, in a way, but God just draws us, he loves us to look at Christ and be filled with awe and love and humility and a realisation of his grace. There's this wonderful, wonderful book I'd recommend, I've probably recommended it about a dozen times from up here, but anyway, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, <laughs> of course. And it pictures um, uh, a day trip from hell and these people who are living like ghosts in hell get a day trip to heaven. And they're met by a welcoming committee in heaven who do their best to persuade them to uh, basically to convert. That's the long and sort of it. I'm not talking about the theological orthodoxy of that picture or anything like that. But it's a very, very powerful picture because um, it, it just brings so many illustrations. But what becomes apparent um, about two-thirds of the way through the story is that in order to meet these ghost-like creatures who come up from hell, the residents of heaven who come to meet them have had to travel back away from God, out of the joy of knowing him, like we've described. You know, they say going towards God is like going, uh, C.S. Lewis says, you know, um, higher up and farther in. So they've had to come lower down and further away. Distancing themselves from the purity, the wonder, the joy, the fullness of knowing God in these three ways that we've described. In order to somehow plead with and bring these people to, to salvation. So um, 
the guide who, who's showing the, this chap all, all these things in the Great Divorce says, I must tell you that I've, they've come further for the sake of these ghosts than you can understand. Every one of us lives only to journey further and further into the mountains. That's the world's goal. Every one of us has interrupted that journey and retraced immeasurable distances to come down today on the mere chance of saving some ghosts. But that is nothing. Even if that were true, that would be nothing compared to what Christ did for us. Philippians says, and it is almost impossible for us to fathom this statement, he emptied himself. It's perfect joy, perfect comprehension of the Father's love, his perfect ability to reflect it fully, his perfect fruitfulness, whatever that means in eternity. Christ, while remaining fully God, emptied himself and took the form of a servant, had to grow like one of us and experience in his humanity what it means to, um, to grow in the knowledge of God. He emptied himself so that we might share in his perfect love. He stooped to wash our feet. was crushed for us. His hands pierced for us. Crowned with thorns for us. He died for us. Descending all the way from that perfect knowledge of the love of God to the cry of abandonment upon the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we could know his perfect bliss. He calls us friends. He welcomes us as brothers. He marries the bride so that we are welcomed into the Father's house. He shares in his inheritance with us. He calls us co-heirs. All that is his, he gives to us. This threefold love of God in a fullness that we can not possibly imagine. He pours forth to us. We may struggle to express the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit but in their trinity, but our minds may rest upon the man, Christ. God became a man that we might know him. And we can love him for it. As we gaze upon him hanging on the cross, we can love him for what he has done for us, for this amazing gift. He is the veil of the temple, torn, the door opened into heaven, that we may see the Father's glory. So think about the Trinity glorifies Christ, and think about the Trinity reminds us what a wonderful promise awaits us. You know, the difference between us as adopted sons and Christ as the one and only Son of God is that he beholds and reflects and is filled fully and eternally without gradation or diminishment. Long theological words, I know. But there is a special pleasure admitted to us in always discovering that there is more. You know, just everyday pleasures. When you think you've finished all the coke in the fridge and you find another bottle. <laughs> when you corner uh, on a motorcycle a little bit faster than you did last time without falling off. <laughs> There's always pleasure in finding more. When you discover a, a bigger roller coaster, you used to take your kids from Legoland for the first time to Chessington and then suddenly their eyes are open. Wow, <laughs> I can go even faster. There's a special, a special pleasure in knowing that there's more. And that's... What that means for us. As adopted sons, we as creatures will know our trying God ever more fully. 
All that you have known of God's love so far is just the tiniest sip of a love more vast than the ocean. In this life, as he sanctifies us, he strips us of our sin, as he strengthens us with the love of Christ, we will comprehend and reflect and be filled more and more and more with this love that all of the pleasures of this life and all the goodness that could possibly be ours will just be like the opening chapters, like the prologue to eternity. So don't be discouraged by your incompleteness, by the limitations of your experience of God's love. He calls us children for a reason. We will ever be growing. Perhaps, you know, today you come here and you're despondent about your immaturity, despondent about your ability to perceive God's goodness in every situation. You're discouraged by a situation you find yourself in. You're hungry for more of the Spirit's power that's been that way for such a long time. We see in this life as just a pale reflection. But there will be a day when we see him face to face. So whatever situation you're in, however childish you may feel in your faith, know this, God will finish what he's begun. When we see him, we will be like him. You know, there'll be no more sin to wash away. There'll be nothing to restrict our ability to reflect his glory. Nothing to limit our experience of of the Spirit's fullness. And even then, I think, when we... when we, can't, we think we can't possibly know his love anymore, when we think we can't possibly see any more of his goodness, we can't reflect it any more clearly, there will be more to come. Which is why I think Jesus compares eternal life to a spring of living water. It never ends, it never stops flowing, ever increasing. That's why goodness must be filled up and pressed down and run over. So I hope this meditation on the Trinity has blessed you. And they, I hope God has spoken to you. And my prayer this morning, through Christ, God may enable us to think about the glorious Trinity, one God in three persons, that he may grant us the joy of, in this life of living in him and moving ever deeper to the Father through the Son and the Spirit. And we should pray, as Paul does in Ephesians 1, we should pray and ask that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the glorious Father, may give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know him better. That the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which he's called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance. Amen.